0: Larry. One of the neat things about uh, holidays around Thanksgiving, around Christmas, is to have a sort of homecoming, all the people who have uh, scattered for various reasons, the school or work or missions, and to have them back with us, it's a, it's a wonderful time to see everybody here and welcome all of you. I'd like to start this morning with a little bit of a quiz and to avoid embarrassment to anybody but possibly me, I'm going to ask you to keep the answers to this quiz to yourself. But think of how you might answer these questions as we begin this morning. Here's the first question. You're in the express lane at the grocery. The sign clearly says 10 items, cash only. Been there, right? You have two cartons of ice cream and one candy bar, and you have plenty Of cash in your hand to make the Express line even more express but the person in front of you has at least 20 items and this person also has a massive purse in which it will no doubt be very difficult to find what she's probably gonna fish for it's gonna be her checkbook you just know that right so anyway how do you respond in a situation like this you respond with gratitude for the ice cream and the candy bar that you'll soon enjoy (laughs) Or B, do you grit your teeth and wonder if the lady ahead of you failed at math or reading? (laughs) Or do you yell at the cashier, checkout line violation, too many items. Okay, so think about that. Remember your answer as we move to the next question. Question number two, you receive a letter from the IRS telling you that you'll soon be receiving a $1,000 refund on your tax return. How do you respond? You respond with gratitude to live in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Or B, you grit your teeth about the other $10,000 you paid in taxes last year. Or C, you rip the letter to shreds while demanding more and complaining that the government shouldn't have had all that money anyway. Okay, remember your answers now. Question number three, you're driving to work in the outside lane and you're doing a few miles per hour over the speed limit. Someone comes up on your tail right behind you at about 90 miles an hour, and they flash their headlights at you, bullying you to get out of the way. How do you respond? You move over as soon as you possibly can, and you pray that their foolish driving doesn't get them into an accident. (laughs) Or B, you grab the steering wheel tighter as steam comes out of your ears. Or C... That was somebody's alarm. Or C, you tap your brakes to get them off your tail. And when they don't, you slow down to make them angry at you. And when they zip by, you glare at them. Okay. And our final question, you're watching your favorite football team play on Saturday. Let's say you're Steve Staub. Steve's not here. That's, that's really too bad because this was going to be fun for him and for us. But anyway, let's say you're Steve Staub and your favorite team wins by a field goal in a very close game. How do you respond? You stand up and you start singing and dancing, woo, pig suey, Razorbacks rule. (laughs) B, you start worrying about the big game next week. Or C, you call a sports radio station, you complain how your beloved Hogs should have won by three touchdowns and should be having a better season. Okay, now think about these, think about the way you answered these questions for a moment. If you answered all A's, your name's probably Joel Vasanen or Jody McIndarfer. <laughs> and maybe one of you should be up here preaching this morning's message. If you had all C's, you might need therapy. But most of you are probably like me. You had a combination of B's and C's, maybe an A, Somewhere in there? Probably not. You're probably not willing to admit this. You do wish you could be more like Joel. I wish I could have titled this morning's message WWJD. Remember that fad a few years back? Bruce even preached a great message on the origin of that WWJD, which became a fad for a while. But when I think about the theme of Thanksgiving this morning, I like to think what would Joel do? There's the story. About Scottish minister Andrew, or I'm sorry, Alexander White, and he was known for his uplifting prayers in the pulpit. He always found something for which to be grateful. And one Sunday morning, the weather was so awful, so gloomy, kind of like this morning, that one church member thought to himself, "Certainly the preacher won't think of anything for which to thank the Lord on such a wretched day as this." But much to his surprise, when the minister began praying, he said, we thank thee, O God, that it's not always like this. (laughs) Now, who does that remind you of? Who does that make you think of? Huh? I don't know about you, but I really want to be able to respond in all of my life with an attitude of gratitude. I want to be grateful, not grouchy. That would have been another good sermon title. And as we begin Thanksgiving this week, And then Advent season next Sunday when we remember the indescribable gift that God gave to us in the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. It's a wonderful time to explore what the Word of God teaches us about gratitude. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 12 through 17. going to spend a lot of time, and this is our primary text today, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, Did you notice something important here? You're all smart, I'll bet you did. In the space of three verses, the last three of the six that we read, we see the admonition from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the Colossian church to be thankful. Just the repetition alone makes me think it must be pretty important, maybe pretty central to this passage of Scripture. Here in this passage, we see Paul encouraging the believers to live up to what they are, as God's chosen ones. That's how he begins. You're God's chosen ones. You're holy. You're beloved. Imagine what the church would look like if we lived our lives among one another, faithfully practicing the things that Paul wrote about here to the Colossians. Now, I'm not implying that these things aren't happening here at TCF. I think they are. But let's think about a church that got really good at applying these things. We'd have compassionate hearts genuinely caring about people's problems and needs and doing what we could about that. We'd be kind and humble, not insisting on our own recognition. We'd be meek and we'd be patient with one another. We'd bear with one another. That means we'd put up with each other. We'd put up with each other's stuff. When there was a complaint about anything, there'd be forgiveness. And there'd be forgiveness with a clear understanding that the roots of that forgiveness are God's Forgiveness of us. That's a key element to what we're looking at this morning. So remember that as we continue. We'd love one another. That would be the hallmark of all we do, the thing that bound us together in the unity of spirit with all these other things. In verse 15, after encouraging us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, we see Paul's first exhortation to be thankful. And then in verse 16, After encouraging us to let Christ's word dwell in us, encouraging us to admonish one another, Paul tells us what should mark this admonishing, this wisdom, this singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What should mark it is thankfulness in our hearts to the Lord. And then in summing up, Paul says that everything we do should be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. Now, that's quite an admonition, isn't it? Everything. Think of that. Everything we do should be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. Think, think of some of the things that you do. Can you truly do those things in the name of the Lord Jesus? When you think of it that way, does it make it harder for you to say, when I'm doing this, this is okay? And in doing so, can we give thanks to God through Jesus in the midst of doing that thing? So here in this letter to the Colossians, Paul paints this wonderful picture of what the church is supposed to look like, how we are to behave with one another, how we are to relate to one another. Remember, he's writing here to believers in Christ. This is one of several places in the New Testament where we get some very specific ideas of how we are to behave. This is a list here, how we walk out our faith in the practical day-to-day realities of our relationships with one another. The fact that we're encouraged to have compassionate hearts assumes the reality that there will be people who need our compassion. The fact that we're encouraged to have patience to put up with one another, again assumes that there will be people in our lives who challenge our patience and in fact have perhaps challenging personalities or quirks or even character flaws in their lives that we find a little bit difficult to tolerate. Don't start looking around. Right here. The fact that Paul admonishes us to forgive one another assumes that people will do things that upset us or even to hurt us. And the fact that we're encouraged here to love because love binds all of these things together like a belt holds up a pair of pants says that there may be people in our lives who are a little less lovable than others. Or there may be some who are usually lovable Maybe they're having a rather unlovable moment, or they're having a rather unlovable season in their lives. But it's interesting to me that we find in all of these things we are to do an attitude that we are to develop, like compassion, humility, patience, love. We also find three separate times in the midst of all these things that that Paul says we need to cultivate, that we need to do, that we need to put on, he says we need to be thankful. Three times he says that. It's also interesting to note that what this word thankful means. In each instance, in verse 15, for example, where it says, be thankful. In verse 16, where it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in verse 17, where it says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Each place, the original language that's translated here as some form of thankfulness has the same root word. The root word for this The Greek word in the original language is charis. It's charis. Charis, of course, means grace. It means something given to you. It means unmerited favor. It's the word translated many places in the New Testament with the English word grace. In fact, the King James translation of verse 16 in our passage from Colossians 3 reads like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Charis is the same word that's translated as Greek, or I'm sorry, trans, the same Greek word that's translated as grace in this passage of Scripture, this familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one May boast. I think it's really instructive for us to pay attention to this close connection between grace and thanksgiving. Think about this for a moment, looking back at the earlier verses in this section. Why should we show compassion? Because God, in His grace as a gift, showed compassion for us. Why should we show kindness? Because he is kind to us. Because the word tells us that the gift of his kindness leads us to repentance. Why should we exhibit humility? Because Jesus humbled himself by becoming the word made flesh who dwelt among us. Why should we be patient with one another? Because the word tells us that God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. Each one of these things mentioned are manifestations of the grace of God, part of his wonderful, undeserved gifts to us. Even the passage from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that we read a moment ago helps us understand this inextricable connection between grace and thanksgiving. In Ephesians 2, we're told that this grace by which we're saved and even this faith through which we're saved are not our own doings. We're not capable of earning this grace. It's a gift of God. It's not because of something we've done. None of us can boast that we've been so good that God could save us or maybe didn't need to save us. So God's grace and this call from Paul three times in this passage, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, are tied together with our thanksgiving. They're deeply rooted in God's grace. After all, as Scripture asks us rhetorically in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's a story told of the post-turtle. Anybody heard the story of the post-turtle? It has several variations, some of which are used in a derogatory way, especially in political terms. It's an equal opportunity slam, regardless of whether you're leanings are democratic or republican either party can use this to describe someone they don't like one version of the post turtle story goes like this you know he didn't get up there by himself and he sure doesn't belong up there he doesn't know what to do up there and you just wonder what kind of an idiot put him up there in the first place okay but I prefer another more instructive story I heard about the post turtle and how it relates to what we're looking at here this morning it takes the first part Of what we just saw the story I just read to you and it leaves the slam off at the end Alex Haley he was the author of roots you remember roots popular television miniseries very popular book in the 70s he had a picture of a turtle on top of a fence post in his office and when anybody asked him why is this picture there he answered every time I write something significant every time I read my words and think that they are wonderful and begin to feel proud of myself I look at the turtle on top of the fence post and remember that he didn't get there on his own. He had help. Now this view of the post-turtle story relates most clearly to what we're looking at this morning. This is the foundation of our gratitude. This is how we can have an attitude of gratitude. We must remember that we got here with the help of God and that he is the provider of every blessing we have. And I would go a step further and say it wasn't just God's help. Help implies that we could contribute something on our own efforts. This turtle didn't have help getting to the top of the post. Someone put him there. (laughs) Think about it, right? God starts with his grace, his generous, merciful heart toward us that gives us life, that saves us from sin and allows us to enjoy so many blessings, none of which we've earned, and none of which we deserve in any way. That's true no matter how talented you are. That's true no matter how hard we work. Our talents are given to us by God. The ability to work at all is given to us by God. What do we have that we did not receive? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, to that question is nothing. There's nothing we have that we haven't received. In James chapter 1, verse 17, this might be the post-hurdle verse. Every good and perfect gift is from God. So thanksgiving is very clearly rooted in God's grace toward us. With that understanding of the roots of this admonition to be thankful, let's go back just for a moment to the passage of Scripture that we're focusing on this morning with this idea in mind. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Starting with verse 12, it says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Why are we God's chosen ones? Why are we holy and beloved? Because of God's grace. His grace from the beginning of time, Scripture tells us. What are we to put on? We see that expanded from verse 12 through verse 13. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In thankfulness for his grace, we can have compassion. Because we're thankful for God's kindness, we can be kind. Because we're grateful for Jesus' model of humility, we can be humble. And because we're thankful God is patient with us, we can be patient with each other. Get the idea? How can we not have compassion toward others when God had compassion toward us? We complain about having to put up with other people's idiosyncrasies, their annoying habits, their lack of manners, their laziness, their sin. But God, while we were still sinners, sent Christ to die for us. You know what? He didn't wait for us to get good. He didn't wait for us to be perfect a little less sinful. He didn't even wait for us to be a little less annoying. He extended his grace toward us before we even thought to ask for his forgiveness. How can we as his followers be anything less than thankful to him for his grace? And in turn, because of that attitude of gratitude, how can we not respond by extending the same grace that God has given us to others? What a great prescription Paul has given us here for true unity and true love in the church. And part of the foundation for this is the grace of God and our response to that grace in gratitude. Think with me for a moment what life looks like when this attitude of gratitude is not present. Let's do the old college thesis. Let's compare and contrast. You remember that? Right in the blue book, it says compare and contrast these two things. Let's compare and contrast the state of gratitude with the state of ingratitude. There's a story of a man who goes to a rabbi and complains, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do? And the rabbi answers, take your goat into the room with you. The man can't hardly believe this, but the rabbi insists, please, just do as I say and then come back in a week. A week later, the man comes back looking more distraught than ever. We can't stand it. The goat is filthy. The rabbi says, go home and let the goat out and then come back in a week. A radiant man returns to the rabbi a week later, exclaiming, life is beautiful, we enjoy every minute of us now, there's no goat, just the nine of us. (laughs) So what do we learn from this, huh? We have this human tendency to compare, don't we? But when we compare our current state with something worse, it often leads to more gratitude, doesn't it? And trust me, there's always something worse. And I know what many of you are going through here this morning, but there's always something worse. In his book, Folk Psalms of Faith, Ray Stedman tells of an experience that a preacher named H.A. Ironside had in a crowded restaurant. Just as Ironside was about to begin his meal, there was a man who approached and asked if he could join him. There wasn't any room at any other tables. So Ironside said, sure, have a seat. And then, as was his custom, he bowed his head in prayer. And when he opened his eyes, the other man said, do you have a headache? No, I don't have a headache. And the other man said, well, is there something wrong with your food? And Ironside said, well, no, I was simply thanking God as I always do before I eat. And the man said, oh, you're one of those, aren't you? Well, I want you to know that I never give thanks. I earn my money by the sweat of my brow, and I don't have to give thanks to anybody when I eat. And I just start right in. And Ironside said, yep, you're just like my dog. That's what he does, too. (laughs) Ingratitude is not pretty, is it? It's not pretty. We could say that a lack of thanks makes us look kind of like dogs, doesn't it? There's some evidence that ingratitude can even make you sick and that a thankful heart can make you healthier. Let me tell you the story of the very first billionaire The very first person to reach the status of billionaire was a man who knew how to set goals and to follow through on those goals. At the age of 23, he'd already become a millionaire, and by the age of 50, he was a billionaire. Every decision, every attitude, every relationship was tailored to create his own personal wealth and power. But three years later, three years after he became a billionaire, at age 53, he became ill, and his entire body was racked with pain, and he lost all the hair on his head. In complete agony, the world's only billionaire could buy anything he wanted, but here's the irony, he could only digest crackers and milk. An associate wrote he couldn't sleep, he wouldn't smile, and nothing in life meant anything at all to him. His personal, highly skilled physicians predicted that he would die within a year. And that year passed very slowly because he was in agonizing pain throughout. And as he approached death, he awoke one morning with the vague remembrances of a dream that he'd had. He could barely recall the dream, but he knew it had something to do with not being able to take all that he had acquired with him into the next life. The man who could control the business world suddenly realized he wasn't in control of his own life, and he was left with a choice. So at that moment, he called his accountants, his attorneys, and his managers, and he announced that he wanted to channel his vast wealth to hospitals, research, and mission work. And that day, John D. Rockefeller established his foundation. This new direction eventually led to the discovery of penicillin for cures for malaria, tuberculosis, and diphtheria. The list of discoveries resulting from his choice is just enormous. But perhaps the most amazing part of Rockefeller's story, you're probably thinking, gee, I didn't know he died at 54. He didn't. The moment he began to give back a portion of all that he had earned, something changed. I don't know if his body chemistry was altered or what it was, but something changed, and it was so significant that he got better, and he lived to be 98 years old. Rockefeller learned gratitude, and he gave back from his wealth. We can learn to be grateful. We can learn to be grateful. Now, if that wasn't true, why else would Paul encourage us to cultivate this attitude if we couldn't learn it? Ungrateful people cannot be happy. Psalm 92.1 says, It is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. Now, why is that? Does God need our thanks? You know, I think we might be able to make a case that God likes it, that God enjoys it, that God appreciates it, But Scripture tells us God doesn't need anything. He's not up there pining away like we probably would be. He's not up there pining away wishing we would be more grateful so he could feel good about himself. When we do things for people and they seem ungrateful, it's annoying and frustrating to us, isn't it? But God doesn't get frustrated. So why is it a good thing for us to give thanks to the Lord? Why is it a good thing for us to cultivate an attitude of gratitude? I believe that it's at least in part because God knows it's good for us. I believe God knows it's good for us. He knows that we need it. Learning to be thankful is the best prevention possible against taking anything for granted, against thinking we deserve anything good. Again, what do we have? that we did not receive. Let's remember again that Paul was speaking to believers here. He was outlining this whole long list of attributes and attitudes we want to cultivate and these attributes are largely focused on how we relate to one another. Several years ago a professor at the University of Nebraska conducted a group of studies called the Family Strengths Research Project and the researchers identified six qualities that make for strong families but the first quality and one of the most important to be found in strong families was the quality of appreciation families that are strong are strong in part the research concludes because family members express to each other their appreciation for what the members of the family do and for who they are in a similar study another researcher looked into the effect of praise in the workplace His study showed that the ratio of praise to criticism in the workplace needs to be four to one before employees feel that there's a balance. In other words, there must be four times as much praise as there is criticism before they feel good about their work, before they feel good about the environment that they work in. Now, isn't this consistent with what we've seen in the scriptures this morning? If we want to have a healthy family, if we want to have a strong workplace or if we want to have a unified body of Christ right here at TCF or any other effective group, we need to make sure that appreciation, praise, and thanksgiving are heard at least four times as often as criticism. All our actions are to be accompanied with thanksgiving. It says in Philippians 4:6, We are to engage in every duty, not only in the name of Christ, but with thankfulness for strength and reason, for the privilege of acting so that we may honor him, and with a grateful remembrance of the mercy of God that gave us such a Savior to be an example and guide. He is most likely to do his duty well, who goes to it with a heart overflowing with gratitude to God for his mercies. And he who is likely to perform his duties with the most cheerful fidelity is he who has the deepest sense of divine goodness in providing a Savior for his lost and ruined soul. Thanksgiving is the foundation for all that Paul encouraged the Colossian Christians to do in their relationships with one another. Paul knew, as this commentary notes, that those most likely to exhibit this kind of Christian character and behavior are those who have the deepest, most abiding sense of God's goodness and grace towards them, leading to a heart that's overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What that means is that salvation is something outside of myself, something with which I had nothing to do. I add nothing to it, I take nothing away. I just receive it as a gift from my Lord. And the rest of my life is spent not in working for my salvation, but the rest of my life is spent in praise and gratitude and love for what Jesus has done for me. So as we this week enjoy family and enjoy friends and we eat our turkey dinners and our pumpkin pie, let's remember God's grace and goodness, and let that be the foundation for our thankful hearts. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these wonderful admonitions in your word to be thankful. We're grateful, God, for all you've done for us. We're grateful for the mercy of God. We're grateful for the grace through which we are saved. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, let the understanding of your grace be a true foundation for our thankful hearts, thankful for the things that we have, thankful for the things that you've done. Father, cultivate in each one of us, we pray, an attitude of gratitude founded fully and completely on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.